0: Hi, you're listening to Wimbledon, hosted by me, Nick Ray. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, I'm super pumped today. We've got an a audio-only episode with Mafalda over in Switzerland. Now, I'm going to say you have just heard... <laughs> Probably the jingle for the first time, and I was just explaining to Mafalda uh, where I got it from. I, I hired someone on Fiverr to do this this uh, this sound, uh, this um, uh, intro, and I can edit. I have a, a revision actually op- option, and but for me it felt a little bit like '80s game show-ish And Mafalda just listened to it uh, to see what was going to show to her, and I think she said the same sort of thing. Um, Never mind. Give me your feedback. There have been a few people who've already uh, asked about it and sort of said, "Yeah, you probably need something." Um, it's fun. It's whatever. I don't really mind that much. And uh, if you really hate it, I'll get the guy who's who's, uh, who's made it for me to to make a new one because actually, I'm hiring him. I didn't tell my father this. I'm hiring him to help me out with the audio stuff on this okay. podcast as well. So he's he's an audio uh, sound engineer actually by trade. Anyway, that is all a very long intro to the little jingle you heard. Mafalda is the the woman of the hour and uh, I would like to pass over to Mafalda straight away to introduce herself and then we're going to get to know her really well. So Mafalda, over to you.
1: Hi, Nick, and thank you for having me on your podcast. I've been binge listening this weekend to a few episodes <laughs> <laughs> to kind of get a little bit of an understanding of um, where you're actually at, because we haven't talked in quite a few years. And so it was very interesting for me to to listen and also get a few tidbits about where you're at. Um, about the jingle. Yes, I have one question, which is, what am I getting at the end of the show? Am I getting something because it did feel very game show but it felt fun <laughs> and fun is important we all need more fun. So. you
0: win a car. Everyone gets a car. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a tiny tiny car. Matchbox, yeah. matchbox a, a brings back car. childhood memories.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so um, introducing myself. That's um I actually thought about you had to send me some preparation in advance and kind of Ooh. thinking how am I going to introduce myself and um Because most of the time, people talk about their roles, what they've done and uh, what they're doing. And um, you are what you do, of course. But I kind of thought about something a little bit um, different from my introduction. So I went to my mood board, which I keep next to my desk here, and I picked up my vision card. So I keep a personal and professional vision and I look at it every day. Uh, Or I try to, (laughs) depending on how busy I am. And I try to live by those words. And it took me a long time to actually craft and be happy with that vision. But that's how I wanted to introduce myself. So, and my professional vision is that I am a leader in a creative field. And I focus my professional energy with courage on the activities and choices that reflect me at my best. And I empower myself and others to reach for this vision with enough security. Um, And so for me, the one word that's very important out of that vision is the creative part. I have a star next to that word (laughs) in in the card. Um, And the other part is about empowerment. And so it's about empowering others and uh, not just myself being kind of the creative leader, but whatever other people's vision is, whenever we need trying to to empower um, themselves to reach for their own vision. Now, my personal one is to have a high energy balance, be able to grow in knowledge together with my partner, there's a little heart next to his name, um, my true friends, <laughs> and to be at my creative best for happiness, for sustained happiness. And so again, the creative part really linking and really features in the two. And I think, why do I wanted to to make this point at the beginning? because I've done a lot of roles through through my my career. And when you look at the things that I do today, sometimes people think, oh, that's interesting, but that's very varied. So I've been a marketing director uh, for pharmaceutical industry for nearly 10 years. Now I'm a board member um, in Switzerland, but I'm also an ink painter. So I do Japanese ink painting and so I'm an artist as well and I've become an artist. Um, so the, the key thing that links all of these things is actually that creativity. So I switched after I did my MBA uh, at INSEAD and switched from finance to marketing um, because I felt the missing link to that creative side of my brain. Uh, I had been finance for five or six years, and I just felt like I wasn't using that side of my brain anymore. And, um, and so in marketing, I really found my game in marketing, marketing strategy, because on the business side, that's really where you get to interact with a lot of creative people. And I interacted a lot with R&D people as well in the pharmaceutical industry, which are the people who are looking at innovation, and how do we get kind of the unmet needs fixed out there. And um, but then I decided to leave. And part of the reason why I decided to leave was because I wasn't spending enough time on the art, on the personal side. And so I decided to create a space for um, making more art. And I didn't know what that was going to be um, at that time. I had no plans, actually, <laughs> of becoming a painter. Um, it just sort of happened by making the time to see and explore uh, more that side, so um, so I think it's that's a little bit who I am. I'm a person who's very creative, who wants to keep being very creative. That gives me energy and allows me to have that high energy balance. Um, but I also like creativity in business, which is you know seeing all the different choices and paths you can take. Um, Helping to bring out the new thinking, you know, sometimes 10, 15 years ahead. And what are the choices you make today that might bring a different future for for a company? Um, And so, so yeah, that one piece behind it all, I guess is creativity.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. So obviously I'm going to plug your website that people should go and check out. And there's amazing art by Mafalda that she's selling on her website. And uh, it's, it's beautiful, like beautiful stuff. It's Japanese uh, ink painting, right? Is that yes. is a specific style of ink So it's painting? a
1: specific style that came from China, actually. The tradition of ink oh, okay. painting is very old um, and it came to Japan through China and then at a little bit the same time almost as the uh, Chan or Zen Buddhism came to, to Japan. And Japan kind of really very typical Japanese way adopted something that was foreign, quote unquote, very eagerly but very eagerly made it its own (laughs) and transformed it into something that's still connected. And you can see where the origin is, but it's something with a few principles that are very, very Japanese. So... um And we can talk a a little bit about them. I'm sure it's going to pop up, I think, as we talk about Yeah, I think so.
0: I'd (laughs) like to back up a bit more, though, because I'm I'm very interested to hear a bit more about how you got to where you are. Because I've interviewed, uh, I don't know how many of them you've listened to. I've done, I think, 13 episodes now. And I've interviewed a bunch of very, very cool uh, people, very uh, high achieving people. Uh, A lot of actually a lot of women, I think I've I think on balance, I've interviewed more women than men now. um, And that wasn't intentional, but I apparently have lots of awesome women who I've met in my life, which is great. Great for my two little girls that I have growing up. Um, But I wanted to hear kind of your pathway, because you mentioned about finance and five or six years there and then INSEAD. I happen to know you're a very smart cookie as well <laughs> as being creative. You <laughs> missed that bit out. Um, and obviously uh, I don't want you to brag too much, but let, let's hear the story like young Mafalda growing up. Where were you when you grew up? I know that you're also quite international as well. So let's hear a bit about that side of, of Mafalda's story as well.
1: So when, it's very funny because um, I've always been very curious and very eager to learn and um, so I used to be, and you said like smart cookie, I th- I think I took advantage of every opportunity that kind of appeared on my doorstep. And I come from actually a relatively poor middle class family um, through several kind of events. But um, for me, for example, even buying a new book when I was a kid was really difficult. But I was very lucky. I lived half an hour to an hour walk to the city library and so every week i would go and pick up two three books from that library and so i had an endless supply of knowledge (laughs) and i made the best of it so i was the type of kid that you would you know everybody gets their school manuals to learn and um, i would be like Before the summer vacation was over, I would have already skimmed through all the books in the (laughs) (laughs) back and be like eager. But then again, I was very lucky that I had teachers who encouraged me to to kind of learn and who said, you know, you work really hard, but, you know, you can be whoever you want to be as long as you work hard enough. And so I took advantage of every opportunity. I studied hard. But my driver at that point to be successful was and I only learned this in my mid-30s, was actually a very, very big fear. And mm. my fear was that um, I might become homeless overnight. Uh, and that is because I was raised by my grandparents. They were, um, my mother was working abroad and supporting some of the family, but um, my parents were, my grandparents were already retired. And so we were very dependent on their being alive and being there to take care of us Um, and so for me at one point my grandmother actually was in a car accident I saw her getting hit by a car and so it drove home this fear that I could be out in the streets overnight because what if these two people disappear they die you know and my Mm -hmm. parents are you know abroad and I'm here all alone and then I won't be able to study Uh, and and so that that fear drove as well the fact that I thought I had to use my brains and the smart cookie, as you said, to mm. run very fast and run as hard as I can to get a university degree as a way of getting financial security. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so for me, I set myself the goal at that point of I need a university education and it needs to be a university education and a field that can achieve that financial security, which is why I chose economics. <laughs> and I graduated close to the top of the class, pretty much top percentile. And um, and then I in, in
0: Switzerland or in, in Portugal. S- I'm originally Port-
1: from Portugal. I didn't mention that no, you mean, yeah, I
0: was going to say because <laughs> I know that you're in Switzerland now, but I and I was born,
1: born. In, in Porto. So a um, place of very good wine and uh, very <laughs> lots of history, which is something that Um, that I love. Actually, when I was a kid, the first job I actually wanted to be was an Uh, archaeologist. So that connection to art, to objects, to history, it's been very strong, I think, since I was a kid. But, you know, archaeologists spend a lot of time in dust and they don't make much money. And there are probably not many jobs in Portugal for (laughs) that. So, yeah, so I went to uh, to university, got a degree in economics. Um, At that point... I have to admit I didn't apply for many jobs. Companies were ringing me uh, and um and so I took a a job in in finance, very close working with um, the executive board of the company that I worked for, um, then got transferred to the largest business unit in Lisbon and um, and so and I worked as a planning manager, pretty much finance manager for for five, six years. And that's then how I decided to, I need to get an international career because I, I spoke um, at the time already, I think, four languages. Yeah, four languages and um, four or five. Yeah, five actually, five languages. And um, and that's when I decided I need to, you know, go for an international career. And so as, uh, and, and in a sense, as a way of you know still getting higher financial security if you think about it uh, and um, although at the time i didn't see it that way i just thought i gotta go for something bigger because <laughs> i need to be better and i need to get my you know to to be at my full potential um and so i i did it all under wraps i told no one until i took my gmap score i was in lisbon i still remember there was uh, the lady you know you do the computer tests at the time everybody's in the room And I did the GMAT. And I knew there was a goal to get to INSEAD that you have to achieve in order to be above the bar. Um, And so I prepared for a year for this uh, on weekends and evenings. And then I left the room. And um, the lady um, asked me, that that was Manning the Room, she asked me, oh, how did it go? And I said, I don't know. I I think it went okay (laughs) and then the the score comes out in this printer very slow printer by the way and um, she looks at it and hands it to me and and she looks at it again she doubles back and she said I think this went really well we don't see this score very often around here Um,
0: (laughs) what was it so just to give context to anyone who doesn't know gmat is a big deal it's the general management admissions test i think every business school pretty much in the world requires you to have it for uh mba i think uh and it's a quantitative which is maths and verbal which is sort of english structure uh half and half uh, and it's out of 800 and the benchmark usually for getting into somewhere like INSEA which is a great business school the best business schools are usually 700 plus I didn't yeah. get 700 by the way newsflash so <laughs> whatever number Mafada's is about to say is definitely better than mine but uh, so that's that was... the context it gets harder as you go through as well so it gets more difficult to get to the higher so you have to make strategic
1: number. choices which is which questions do you not answer because you know you have to get to a certain you know side of the curve Um. So, I got 730, 730, That's which awesome. is, it was just a little bit above what the average was for NCAD at the amazing. time. That's I had amazing. looked at several schools, but to be fair, I dropped one application, one school. It was going to be <laughs> NCAD for me or no MBA at all. Um, but um, yeah, but so from there on, it was about how do I get to that goal? How do I get a loan? How do I get a leave? How do I negotiate everything? Um, but I'm very grateful to that door that opened with INSEAD, because to me, it was a door to, again, another world um, and um, the companies that I worked after INSEAD. So, so it was a big goal, I think, um, to, to set myself on achieving, on going to, to INSEAD and preparing for that. But then it was very helpful for me as well, 10 years kind of later or after, more than 10 years later, when I decided to do my next transition. Because it gave me the confidence to say, after INSEAD, after my MBA, I managed to change country, function, um, and industry, all three in one go. And it maybe gave me a little bit arrogance as well, but it gave me this confidence that I could reinvent myself, uh, no matter how many times I want to, I can reinvent myself as long as I put the the effort uh, and the energy into it, So, which I think is... Is a great thing, I think, to have. Uh, very often, you you create these mental barriers or these perceptions of yourself and who you are um, that kind of hold you a bit back. But you can, ch- I think, you can, and you should challenge very often what are those things that uh, that people believe and you believe that you are, because your identity is always in in flux. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> I love that. I think that's a really interesting insight as well. And I, I agree. Uh, I agree. You know, these mental barriers, I think that's, I mean, swinging right back to what the sort of, I guess the main <laughs> purpose or hope of this podcast is about wind building. And and, and uh, as I've explained to you, I sort of talk about constructing winds. And I've got this idea that, you know, it's not, it's, it, there's it's quite, there's quite a lot of steps to it and there's quite a lot making in it. But of course, personal excellence achieving the very best performance in executing whatever skill or talent it is that's required to execute for the strategy and etc etc that personal performance is often hindered or mainly hindered by mental barriers and and the mental sides i mean i'm fascinated with i love sport and i'm fascinated with the mental side of sport because at the very highest elite levels it's those mental barriers you know these top yep. players have psychologists as a part of their team to help them break down what it is they you know what it is they 're feeling how it is they're interacting and things it's It goes to such a uh, a deep level and it can affect performance so dramatically so I totally see what you 're saying there <laughs> um, and I think we do we have things which hold us back i mean for sure, like you know people have hang ups. I've said this before, but I couldn't believe I was at INSEAD. I mean, I didn't get... I got 690-something, I think, in my GMAT, which wasn't high enough, according to... Still an amazing score. According to the averages, you know, it was like you were supposed to get seven hundred or more and I didn't and then I took so I took it again and got six fifty <laughs> or something the second time around. I was like, Shit Because you were more stressed. You were more stressed. I got my application as quick as possible before they noticed I'd taken it a second time. But uh no, I, I couldn't believe I was there and I felt completely, you know Yeah, I, I felt really behind the, the curve and, and uh you know the whole Are time. Are you I was saying
1: there, you felt imposter syndrome, Nick?
0: Yeah, massive, massive. But ironically, you know, and I'm sure everyone who has imposter syndrome feels, I genuinely felt like I deserved to have the imposter syndrome. I mean, there's so many incredible people at INSEAD who are just such high achievers and, Uh, I mean, I found one of the funniest things was, uh, so I'm going to assume some of our NCED friends might listen to this. I think one of the and maybe they had this, I think one of the funniest things for me was watching these incredibly high achievers who'd always been first in their class, who'd always been the number one and, you know, clearly had just been achieving after achieving after achieving. Suddenly they weren't top of the class anymore and there was some other person who was like, more smart than them in something or could, could do something better than that. And I just loved watching that dynamic because for me, it was quite funny because I, I was just sitting there going, well, I barely deserve to be here anyway. <laughs> so I'm just <laughs> observing now. <laughs> uh, but I, no, but I, I, I think I see, uh, I, I did learn just to, just to clarify, I did learn there was parts of my sort of profile that was, that could add value. And I'd, I'd really, I'd, I'd like seen things in work, uh, which I think a lot of people hadn 't seen where i 'd like worked very much on the front line as a manager in customer service mm. type roles and and dealt with like really angry customers and all those sorts of things and teams who were dealing with those angry customers, things like that, which most of the people at least a lot of the people who were who were my peers at the business school hadn 't had that kind of experience, so I could I could speak to that, but that was about all I had. <laughs> I definitely didn't. I think, I,
1: just... I think the trick is that everybody kind of had one superpower. And, and I think that the problem you all felt comparing, if you started that comparison game, you'd, you'd never end it because I think everyone had a different superpower. And so you'd always feel imposter versus someone else, right? I, I would never be able to snowboard. <laughs>
0: <That's>... <laughs> well, you say that. You live in no. Switzerland
1: no no and um, I come from a Mediterranean country and like very much river sea but no no mountain there's no mountain nearby and no
0: snow but do you surf Mafalda because you're saying that and you're from Portugal which has incredible (laughs) surfing so that is a terrible excuse not to snowboard
1: I did classical ballet for many years and so I had this horrible (laughs) speaking about like going back a little bit to how you have these mental barriers I had this horrible uh, mental barrier of if I break something in some extreme sport I'll never be able to dance again um yeah and so I was like I love ballet (laughs) and so I was like no no this is like a bad excuse
0: so (laughs) tell me I'm I'm so We've gone through a little bit, of well, a bit of your history now, and, yeah. and you've become, you, you've gone from marketing executive, like career-wise, marketing yeah. executive uh, out of business school. So finance pre-business school, your marketing thing. executive out of business school That's in cool. pharmaceuticals, right?
1: Yes. So you so. were
0: working, because uh, for those that don't know, Switzerland is a, a, a hotbed for lots of big uh, lots of these big companies you're hearing about on uh, the vaccines at the moment with coronavirus uh, vaccines and stuff. Uh, that's right, isn't it? A lot of them are based in Switzerland. Or am yes, I wrong? so
1: um, pharmaceuticals is a big hub. Um, you have to understand uh, like, um, where it came from, which is it came from the silk dyeing industry. And so in um, basically I think in 16th, 17th century, now I, my dates are not very accurate, but um, <laughs> Basel um, d- wanted to compete with imported silk industry, and therefore it was important for you to know how to dye your silk. And if you want to dye your silk, you need to know about pigments, and you need to know a little bit about chemistry, and that was the beginning of uh, the chemical industry. And from the chemical industry oh, then, yeah. pharmaceuticals later on spun off, and that's a very typical trend for corporate world you get higher margin businesses and then lower margin businesses and at some point some of these become growth high margin businesses and they can go out on their own and kind of kind of start spinning and uh, specializing and you know uh, fragmenting into different industries and so that's how the pharmaceutical industry uh, kind of took root in Basel specifically within switzerland and then you went to have all of these very big companies so um...
0: i love that you've just taught me that because i always thought it was just about tax or something i i <laughs> had always assumed it was something to do with money because it
1: like... might stay there because Because, of course, it's attractive. (laughs) In in some cases, it is attractive. But you have to think that it's the know-how usually that keeps people. Because if you think about the the cost of carrying a global headquarters in terms of personnel and staff and very uh, talented staff, if you think about R&D and global headquarters strategic competencies, it's very expensive to keep a headquarters Mm -hmm. in Switzerland. Um, And so there's got to be... A little bit more than just uh, the tax and I think it's the know-how it's the ability to innovate and all of that comes of course because then you have all of these universities and um, and very good uh, kind of factories to generate you know this innovation and mm. in the engine and so you have you generate an entire ecosystem but it took hundreds of years to get that ecosystem there I think a lot of people are like you they forget um, kind of all the little tiny steps and um but i think that's something that's uh
0: that's really we sometimes tend
1: to think in a very short time horizon and sometimes we think the long term is like you know 10 years or five years but um for many industries that long-term horizon has been you know hundreds and sometimes thousands of years of um, um of knowledge accumulated and uh yeah i developed. hadn't i hadn't
0: thought about it but then now thinking about the you know some of the trading areas as well and and the trading routes and stuff yeah. I, I think my my only example which hasn't been as long term is um well of course silicon valley but uh but bangalore where i, I lived in Bangalore for a, nearly a year uh with with the last company I worked with and um that's a massive hub for i t at uh, that and Hyderabad yeah. in India and what was interesting was it was you know it was cheap labor who were qualified to do it and everyone knows that you know it's like this whole there was all these jokes and joke shows about call centers in india and things but what what was interesting was it became even while i was there it was becoming so expensive like office space and just you know hiring Mm. people was because they were jumping their salaries massively every six months so it was becoming more and more expensive and they were kind of getting themselves towards you know being similar cost to doing it back home but of course all of the talent in those fields were heading there because that was where the opportunities were so it was just a thriving uh, center for uh, opportunity in specifically it uh, talent in both Hyderabad and, and Bangalore and so it's now become attractive for a different reason rather than it being cheap it's also it's Cheap, the competence um, good yeah. competence in, in 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 it so yeah it was quite interesting to see that but i never knew that about uh, basel and i i've been to basel a whole load of times <laughs> so i should have known that that's really really interesting <laughs> but i think
1: that's where the um, you know having a little bit that interest in history which is always there from the beginning i'm really fascinated by these kind of things that are usually buried in in books and under piles of dust <laughs> And um, but I think also because they explain a lot of ad, about people I think there's um, the choices we make and, and history of course you have books and stuff but in every company there's a history and um, very often people um, will say you know oh that's the way we do things here that's the way we don't do things here and usually there are reasons and there's a history to that as well and so it's history of a company or the circumstances that are important for you to actually understand where you are and how far can you stretch and where can you go and what do you need to influence in order to get let's (laughs) bring it back to the goals to you know (laughs) what maybe your next corporate goal is or um, where you think a company or a team um, is
0: headed right so actually on that i'm gonna i'm gonna so i was gonna ask you more about um this fear thing that you talked about and how that's that became a guiding principle i wanted to ask yeah. you where you where that came from but actually having just touched on what you what you have being a board member in a company already and and being having studied in executive board membership and you know you you, you you're a strategical advisor for a company so you work with the top levels in businesses to help them drive forwards and 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 achieve or set goals and achieve goals i'm very interested to know from your perspective you know what changes have you seen uh you know in your time in business since since finance time when you you said you were working closely with the leadership team then to now and in, in the way the world is now, uh, you know, feel free to get completely political and controversial so I can clip some things out and, you know, like uh, make it shock horror clickbait. No, but <laughs> like, <the laughs> things that you've noticed that, that have changed in the world uh, and, and, and especially in how businesses now have to conduct themselves. Um, because I, I i it feels like we're in a in a in a huge shift in so many different things you know there's so many different things that have happened in the last say five years of course this huge pandemic that's happened this last year has been enormous but things like the me too movement things like the 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 push dramatic push and shift in the way in which we're getting more women into boardrooms not enough but more women women's boardrooms and things and 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 everything else that goes alongside it in the way that business is being regulated compliance tax havens are being you know eliminated left right and center uh, so all of that stuff uh, give it to me straight what is it like <laughs> <laughs> what have you noticed well,
1: I think um, I notice that there's been a really fire behind, I think, the the inclusiveness um debate. That's one thing that's changed. and uh, I think it's changed because you also have a generation of of people who are expecting to see equality and real change by now. And they haven't. And I think if you look at particularly gender equality, I volunteer for INSEAD and the women in business here in Zurich um, for the association. Um, And if you look at when will you achieve gender equality um, in terms of timelines, we're talking about 200 years. Mm. And 200 years means it's not in my lifetime, it's not in your lifetime. It means your daughters, your two daughters, will not see a gender equal world. They will still be facing obstacles. And so that's a very hard message, I think, for people to take, to realize that it's not going to happen in our lifetime. And so it feels very sad, but at the same time, it it you know, one side of the equation could say, you know, I just, just put my, shrug my shoulders and say, okay, or... You should nudge every day as much as you can or take as little steps as you can. And so I actually wrote a letter for them, for the INSEAD magazine uh, here in Switzerland. is going to come out in, in March for the association. And and the, the, the um, sentence that I use is going to be the power of one and mm. the importance of the power of one, one step, one conversation, one day, one moment at a time. And so um even if it's just talking about what are the issues, what are the challenges and opening it up, um, but also making companies more transparent, driving towards um, more equal goals. But I think that the urgency of this all kind of, it was bubbling for a long time. And I think now you, you feel this generation that is really starting to break the glass ceiling getting more on boards and and they feel that urgency too and i think um so i think that's one thing and i think companies are more accountable for it because um one of the the big things that has happened with uh, with digital disruption across the board is that transparency is just very high you can't hide you used to have and talking about my marketing experience you used to have a very Unilateral communication, you know, you build a message, you build a positioning, you build a corporate communications, you put it out there, uh, and everything is very formal and there's very um, kind of it's a very linear sort of approach to it. And, and it was not so easy to, to figure out sometimes what is going on behind the scenes. And all of that is gone. You have to assume that this conversation you and I are having. Any conversation, no matter behind which closed room or, you know, cell phones, off, all of that might become public at any point in time. And so the question then becomes, are we having the right type of conversations? And Mm -hmm. are we really behaving the way we should as a company? Are we taking into account all our stakeholders? And that's another big theme that uh, our stakeholders are not just a shareholder. Um, and that's a very big debate, I think, right now, on uh, on every board, and I think uh, every company that uh, that this idea that came from, and I'm an economist, so I came from <laughs> uh, economics training. This idea that the shareholder stands at the top and is the primary stakeholder of a company, still very much driving a lot of companies, but um, but it's um It's an idea that's interesting but it you have to understand where that idea kind of came from and the idea is that capital is very risky capital should be rewarded which is true but the idea that you have a spread base of capital that you have a huge group of small shareholders um, which individually put their risk forward but they might not have a lot of say and so you have to protect all of these shareholders because in the midst of them all, there will be people with small, you know, um, mid, mid-sized savings. But um, that's not the world we live in anymore, in fact, right? Mm. Um, equity is uh, owned by very, very large groups with huge interests. Um, and you're not necessarily bringing more equality by, um, by trying to appease... S- certain very large shareholders and so you have to really think about are you doing uh, things um, thinking about a long term where we are all going to be still here but where the planet is still going to be here and and that's probably my last kind of uh, point about what's changed I don't want to talk too much about digital because I think that everyone probably will talk a lot and has talked a lot but I think it's the planet Um, we live today in what people call the Anthropocene, uh, mm. which is kind of an age that's been brought about by our own making, not a particularly um, comfort, <laughs> not a particularly. It's not going to be a very comfortable, comforting age to live in. Um, very hot and bothered. I guess will be probably how we'll end up describing it. Maybe not in our lifetime still, but um, but I think what we should be striving is. And I read a book, and I can't recall where who was the scientist that talked about this but we should be striving to reach the age of the oikosi, which is the idea that the man is not at the center and the man has not created this massive destruction but that the planet really and the environment and the entire system is at the center and that we should be striving for balance of everything so um but it's very difficult to bring all of these priorities at the same time i think on a board and so for me i think right now i think that the challenge is to focus on what are the things and the steps you can take now and which ones can you um, can you strive to to influence and and continuously nudge. I think for me, it's more important to continuously nudge, bring things on the agenda when you can and when there's a stage for it, because um, change needs to be sustainable as well. And a lot of businesses right now are really thinking still about um opportunities but thinking about survival as well and um so that's you know it, but those are some of the challenges that i kind of see at uh, at board I th- level I,
0: I think it's really it's really interesting to hear you say it I, i've felt quite um i don't know i feel like I, I i feel like i sometimes i feel like i don't fit in because i i don't really believe that capitalism is working in the way it's been you know in the way certainly the way adam smith thought about it right i mean i, I think it's changed so much like you kind of stuff you described but even when we were at business school together in 2006 you know we were still then being taught you know shareholder values everything cash is king and shareholder value right i mean you know, it was all about how do you maximize shareholder value and that was the theme in I'd say every MBA around the world and possibly still is. I haven't been back to uh, business school to study again, but it, it feels like there has been a shift, but it's still the, the managers and people who have sort of grown up in companies have come have been being pumped out of business schools and things with this sort of, you know, mantle of, we must maximize shareholder value. And as you mentioned, you know, the equity and, and, and the money is, 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 is in such you know such a, a rel- like the huge money for the shareholders is in such a relatively small number of hands who are trying to influence and trying to you know have that influence on especially on the behavior of the company uh, because they're shareholders and i think i feel uncomfortable with it i feel uncomfortable with the way it's gone i feel like you know the conversations that need to be had often aren't being had and we get i feel like we sort of average humans get distracted by a lot of bs or bullshit <laughs> i can swear on my own podcast yeah you can <laughs> which, which is which is kind of irrelevant you know there are huge issues facing the world i believe i believe in in you know the climate science uh pending catastrophe you know i i, I believe that that is a very strong possibility I, I you know i believe in a lot of the things which for some reason have become you know, question marks to some people. I, I sort of follow a lot of the mainstream science. I, I just don't understand what how we end up getting ourselves so distracted and wound up in conversations which seem to be quite settled, and yet these bigger things where there's like massive amounts of influence, power, and money just being—it feels like being shifted in one direction. Uh, especially right now in this pandemic it just feels odd to me and it makes me feel uncomfortable because in the end it feels like we're going to rely on Bill Gates who I believe is an, an amazing man and and you know Warren Buffett who I believe is an amazing man for what they've what they've committed to doing with their pledge but a lot of those types of people generally men to do the right thing and that feels risky you know like in in the in the way that we're supposed to have this democracy capitalism is supposed to be uh, empowering everyone and things it just feels weird and it i guess to circle back to what you said it feels comforting to know that at least there's some conversations going on at the board levels of these things
1: i think that the difficulty of bringing for example um I think you don't have a difficulty bringing it on the board at a, a very large company because you have a lot of resources and you have a lot of functions and you so you you may actually set aside some time to to look into how you're going to implement, for example, the Sustainable Development Goals, um, and you you have the money to potentially um, you know actually implement a lot of these things a lot quicker if you're a mid-sized company you're probably struggling to put that on the radar or even pick the one goal that is relevant for you just because your teams are small your resources are crunched and it's you know you're you're not kind of swimming necessarily in um in extra cash um Mm. so i think there is that but i think there is just one fundamental thing which is missing and it's still missing and there are quite a lot of people uh, looking into the research and You know, the reason we've put shareholder value foremost, it's because of proxy variables. Um, So economists like simplifying things a lot because the real world is really complex. And so you try to figure out what are the one simple things where mathematically you can say, if this is a good proxy variable, if I just measure that one thing, I'll make sure that everything else works brilliantly. (laughs) But because the world is very complicated, typically things do not work out quite like that. And the one thing we're missing is actually we've been taking a lot of stuff for granted for free from the planet. And there's no easy way to show it and for it to impact your bottom line and your balance sheet and your um, income statement. And that is something that matters a lot because if you don't see and you don't measure and you cannot um, see the impact of that there's actually if you think about it from a shareholder value perspective you're going to be putting money behind projects which seem financially a lot of very sound and very attractive because there's this hidden cost um, which is not there Uh, and so until i think we unlock really that and i think you do have ways of showing what the potential impact and managing are um but they're still externalized and there's still one additional report and they're still um not part of your balance sheet mechanics and your real kind of money and it's difficult to think how you actually i don't have a solution for that right now there are a lot of smart Mm. people looking into it but um it's probably a combination of uh, taxation as well as liability management, but something's got to be done so that when you evaluate a project, you have to take somehow the planet into account. And because we don't have those tools, we can't apply them. And so because we can't apply them, it's really difficult to go out there and say, well, we shouldn't be doing this project because people are going to come to you and say, why? Um mm intuitively, you're going to say, well, because I'm probably taking more from this planet than what is reasonable for the value that I'm creating for one species on this planet, which is the human species. Um, But if you cannot measure, you cannot manage. And unfortunately, that is uh, like, I just think that that's one aspect that is probably still missing. And people are trying to figure it out yeah so. it's an interesting point
0: i have a good friend actually who well so here in norway i think they're making quite a lot of ground in in uh energy and uh, because yeah. of course they've got this huge oil wealth uh fund uh oil fund and um but also they've been doing a lot of work i think it's become a bit of a hub for energy specialists and things like that and he yeah. he was telling me all about carbon credits and kind of how they work and the and the market for them and that feels like there's there's an opportunity there at least to try and make some ground on on certain things you know with regards to people taking responsibility and how how governments and and businesses might operate with that in mind i think in reality social pressure now is having the biggest effect on change uh (laughs) I'm being very general here because I'm trying not to be anywhere near political I suppose yes. <laughs> because, because because I'm trying to make statements which make sense right and but I feel like with the things that have happened in the last maybe five ten years this the uh, alongside this huge you know information access to instant information, the way in which we communicate and and the way in which people can communicate to a huge audience instantaneously, those types of things have created the opportunity for for social movement and and social pressure therefore i think can have a dramatic effect it can, it is, is having yeah. a dramatic effect on 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 certain companies and certain behaviors i just again wonder like the, the challenge of course is that some of those pressures are stemming from belief systems whether it's religious mm. belief whether it's you know b- belief in science or belief in non-science or you know whatever but that that, that pressure becomes intense and people che- make knee-jerk reactions to things which are not actually necessarily rational or extremely well thought through and I, I use i guess just to to continue being touching on controversy there's a guy called eric weinstein who's a is a a kind of brilliant um uh biologist i think he is is it? but he's a scientist and his him and his partner do a podcast called the dark horse and they're quite controversial they've questioned like various controversial things which a lot of i guess mainstream or 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 perhaps liberal people have really reacted strongly to because they say you shouldn't question these things you know this is done this is like you know and and I think it's interesting because I I love listening to their podcast. I don't agree with everything they say, but I love listening to their podcast because I think it's important to hear the other side of the conversation. But I I guess where I'm say, what the reason I'm saying all this is I think social pressure has an opportunity. But it's like how do you apply that in a targeted and c- constructive way to affect behavior in boards? who like you Mm. said you know it's really it's really and in the end and i'm I'm maybe cynical here but i believe that most businesses especially mid-size and and smaller are doing most things that they have to do to defend their reputation which in the end comes down to their bottom line it's like if we get bad press that's going to cost us you know potentially loss of sales potentially whatever and that's why they're making those decisions rather than these kind of sustainability goals of you know because we're good people and we want to do right by the world, I'm I, I maybe a bit cynical there, but I also don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Well,
1: Handling I think as long to... as they're doing something, I think that's already a good right. thing. Um, yeah. If it's coming more from the heart and purpose, it's usually better than if it's coming from wanting to to avoid a negative impact. But it's already good that they're doing something. Um, but I think that it's yeah, it's a really difficult I think topic because um like how do you channel pressure what what pressure are we talking about um I think it's a question that I always ask myself and I've always um I always ask myself when I'm on the board but also in my executive career is if this were my own company if this was the only thing that um that I was working in, uh, would I still say this? Would I still act this way? Um, and why would I, or why wouldn't I? And um, mm. and then the other thing is, if this decision were to, to be seen tomorrow as the headline of a newspaper, uh, and I was not here in the company, I was just a reader, how would I react to that? And um, I think this ability to to kind of, to think, how would I react if I were X or Y, if I were a person who's not in this company, if I'm a person who's doing a completely different job or living in a different country, just trying to get yourself out of your own shoes and putting yourself in someone else's shoes. um, I think that's very important, because I think that kind of always makes you think about, oh, well, hang on a second, if these people wouldn't react necessarily positive to this. Why would that be? Um, And so it makes you challenge a little bit the integrity, I think, of your decision. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think another question that I always ask is, um, how is this going to leave the company and the environment around it in a better place than it was before I came and I sat at that table? Um, And so that's always a question that i try to to ask myself so i don't maybe i'm not ambitious enough <laughs> somehow but um i'm very skeptical about sometimes people that come with big visions and we're going to change the world overnight because typically when we've changed the world overnight and revolutions um we've ended up in some pretty dark places
0: there's a lot of dust to settle (laughs) and and not
1: really very sustainable um changes too if you drive too hard too fast and you leave a lot of people excluded along the way and so but i think to getting back to to the pressure, I think that there's a lot of things that we're not really understanding how to to deal with. We have going back to your question about it feels like there's too much power here or there, and I think it's a good question. We in. We build a lot of um, compliance mechanisms and policies around particular industries, around particularly antitrust, monopolies. But all of these compliances and rules and regulations we put in place were placed for a 20th century economy and for a 20th century environment, um, not for a digital economy. And so the notion of what is a monopoly, what does a monopoly apply to, and it's not just about products and product competition anymore, and we're really struggling to pinpoint how to manage that. And the biggest um, debate that I see uh, right now, but that's from a consumer perspective, not necessarily from sitting on a board. It has impact on a board, but it's it's the war on data, and I think we have and we will see a war on data, and it's it's a very competitive aggressive war and it needs a lot of regulation and it's been and i i can i guess i could be a bit political there because i don't sit on the board of a <laughs> of a company that um that has um this type of particular business model uh you know an ad driven or data pure data driven model um but um it's it's a very interesting it's a very interesting debate so we so too- were not uh, able to somehow um keep a level playing field anymore in a lot of these new industries and that's really difficult so
0: i think all of us have, have misunderstood that the, that our data was going to become valuable yeah. and we've those of us who've realized it even if we've realized i'm not going to pretend i actually understand it completely but like now come to the realization it is valuable well it's definitely too late and it's aggregate valuable really that's what the danger is and these these massive companies like you say i mean the the i don't know if you've seen if you've seen social dilemma on netflix it's a documentary or a film actually that they made it's very very good but i i posted about it on something i can't remember facebook or something and uh Oh, i know i think i said it WhatsApp. that whatever my friends a few of them were like yeah but it's obvious it's nothing i didn't already know and i'm thinking but if you stop and think about it it is things you didn't know because there's so much to it you know we all know oh yeah, yeah they've got a data and it's you know oh it's not great and you know <laughs> i don't really want them to be spying on me but it's like it's so much deeper than that and the, the sort of the the insidious nature with which it can be manipulated and used against us or, you know, used against countries, you know, in which people like peoples can be manipulated. I think it's, yeah, it's pretty scary really. And I, I agree, I think it's, it's, it's a massive challenge for, for our time. I, I don't know if it's bigger than climate, <laughs> <laughs> but it's certainly an enormous challenge for us. Uh, I'm optimistic around developments in technology and the way in which those things are going. But then again, I'm a total nerd and listen to loads of AI podcasts and things. So I'm uh, <laughs> I'm wildly optimistic at all up front <laughs> and colonizing Mars. But uh, I wanted to step back to actually just quickly to one thing you said, which I thought was beautiful. And I wanted to kind of highlight something interesting about it. You said about uh, sort of leaving the seat a better place. You, you said mm-hmm. about, you know, that's kind of a, a rock. For, you didn't use that word, but that's a sort of rock for you where you you think to yourself am i you know am i going to sit here and, and leave this live pl- leave, leave if a better place because i've been here um and you said oh it doesn't you know that doesn't fit with these sort of ambition i think you even said maybe i'm not ambitious what's interesting about that is one of the so rugby is a sport you probably have no understanding of at all you've probably heard of it but being <laughs> it's quite big in portugal but it's not huge uh it's certainly not that big <laughs> in but but um but rugby the best team in the world is the all blacks or were for many many years now it's england of course because that's where i'm from no but uh (laughs) the all blacks are very famous and they have such an interesting uh set of uh sort of behaviors around their team and their culture and it really it does bleed in because the country's rugby crazy and you know it's not a very big country so um one of the things is, you know, leave the shirt in a better place than when you uh, when you put it on. Right. So when you play in an all black shirt, the idea is you leave the game, you leave the shirt with it in a better place. And I love that mentality because that is that runs throughout the team. It's part of their culture and everyone knows it. So it, it retains for starters, it retains a level of humble. They also have like sweeping out the shed at the end of the day. One of the players has to sweep out the changing room at the end of the, every game, no matter how big. And these guys are like demigods in New Zealand. You know, if you get to play for the All Blacks, you are a megastar. But they have this sort of, this culture. And and, and I think that is part of why they're such a winning team. Because they have this sustained culture over a long, long period, which just drives them forward incrementally in a positive direction. And I think that's what you kind of, what I see you alluding to. And I certainly don't think it's a lack of ambition. I think it's a very uh, practical and, pragmatic approach towards trying to conduct yourself in business. I think you know if you're trying to shoot for the stars all the time and never ever step back to check where you're at and check you know are we am I right now heading in the right direction today until tomorrow, then uh, then there's massive potential for you to to do some <laughs> something <laughs> reckless or something that doesn't take you in a positive direction, right? Uh, no
1: i think so and i think you in times of especially in times of stress where um the short term is very very prominent um you can see yourself kind of being sometimes potentially almost uh, herded into a corner which is not necessarily the corner where you you think you should be headed um yeah. so it's really it's really even more important i think to to have that in mind in times like this but i think there's a few um, like in terms of leaving it in a, a better place and the fact of... I think diversity is a part of it. Like, I think you you need a good mix in the room. and So you need the people have sometimes, you know, the moonshot and the putting people on Mars um, and uh, and having that vision sometimes, you know, we could be here 20, uh, 20 years down the line. But at the same time, it's important that you recognize that it's the every day and the every step and every everyday practice that really gets you there to the to the moonshot as well right it's showing up every I think every day but I think that's um, it's very funny because I talked about how the art sometimes you know feels very different from business I think that's where we started but there's few principles out of um, for example the ink painting practice which I which are I use and are very related to how you do and achieve goals in in business as well and I think it's if you look at just like three principles one of them is being connected and so being connected being present you are looking at the world the nature around you and seeing how that changes how that impacts you and so and that you take from that inspiration to art and in japanese art but in business it's exactly the same you you strive to be if you want to be at your best, you strive to be present and engaged in the moment in every meeting in every discussion, and it's not always easy to do because there's so many distractions, your cell phone and you know the other conversation and the other meeting you need to run to. So being connected, I think is is one of those principles which still apply and then there's this notion of um I think in um this notion of the um, ever evolving. Uh, and kind of the impermanence of things. And uh, and so some people see this with a certain negative or a sad feeling that, you know, the flower opens today, you paint it, but the flower will be gone tomorrow. Um, but what that tells you is that it's a cycle, things will go again, but it means there's an opportunity for renewal and an opportunity for evolution every day. And so you shouldn't be hung up on achieving everything on one day because everything is forever evolving. And so that gives you both an opportunity to act today, but both an opportunity to, oh, hang on a second, I can keep coming back and keep improving and keep changing things, right? Mm -hmm. Because nothing really lasts forever. Um, So I think that some of these principles are, you know, you apply them in art in a sense that you think about, you appreciate all of these different stages. But it also means that I practice every day. I practice business or I practice art every day. And I don't reach perfection, but that's not the goal. I keep practicing and I strive to keep a little bit better every day. And even Mm -hmm. when I fail, I learn something about why it didn't really work out the way maybe I wanted to. And that principle is is very important I think in
0: both so I think something you've so I I, I was looking at your website and uh and I, I one thing I, I'm not going to pretend I know all of your art by the way this is going to sound like <laughs> I've like completely like stalked you now but uh I noticed one of the pictures of um I've forgotten what flower it is I apologize but it it, it was a it was an opportunity to buy you you're selling some of uh, the the prints and it, you'd said oh you had this story alongside it it's now orange I think you said it was red it's now orange or so, oh, <laughs> vice versa I can't remember exactly but it was uh, oh the was autumn
1: this, leaves I think it was autumn, autumn leaves yeah autumn
0: leaves <laughs> are now orange this year and you know and yeah. and I just thought it was so lovely there's there is a story behind the thought process of the art there as well and I really love that it gave it it gave the picture a personal note it didn't it sort of it almost transcended you being the artist and went into the picture having this story and this evolution which you've just kind of alluded to there in in the point about ever ever evolving it's sort of the art itself is evolving and i know having seen artists i'm not an artist myself i i love painting with my kids and things but i'm like I'm not good, <laughs> but I really enjoy it. Uh, and I, but I see, you know, with with how like how much time and effort it must take just to to get there and how many how many times you're throwing away a picture because it's like, no, that's, you know, no, <laughs> it's not right. It's not the one. Um, so I, I do love that. And, and I wanted to get more into and we're, we're kind of running low on time now, I guess. But uh, I wanted yeah, to get really- to your art as well, because I think that's a really interesting Point, uh to to just highlight is where has the art always been a thing since you were a kid you you mentioned that you really got into it more recently but like has it always been something you've pursued when did the japan the J- little japanese connection come in and w- like what do you what have you seen with the way in which the art has changed you as a, as a person god that's a big one sorry um, <laughs> go is for? it but it, we'll uh, sit back and it's a coffee. good it's a
1: good one and it's one that i love talking about so i think i've always had a, a little bit of connection to art because i loved history and i loved uh, art a little bit i've done classical ballet so uh when i was a kid so my connection to art was mostly through dance um but because i had this uh ambition of achieving and reaching for financial security the creative side of me was always kind of very suppressed you know i used to write poems for fun during high school you know I used to get one as a homework and i used to write a whole bunch of them for fun because i loved um, the aesthetics and i loved the formality of it all um, and i used to spend my entire weekends in museums and, and galleries on weekends and i took a art history uh, course um, in the evening when I was still working as a finance manager. So there was this kind of learning and bookish kind of uh, learning throughout um, because I was still trying to connect, I guess, to to that wish of being close to to the arts. Uh, in fact, I didn't I worked in a project which was online strategy for art museums. <laughs> so uh,
0: <laughs> I vaguely remember that
1: but... <laughs> vaguely probably remember that. Um. So for me, I was always trying to somehow um, connect one way or another to, to that. I think Japan was very, very interesting. Um, when I was in Lisbon, I remember being very amazed by the uh, the objects that came from what is called the Namban Age. So the period when uh, the Portuguese uh, navigators uh, came to Japan and brought some of the first objects from Japan to trade um, in Europe. And And the level of craftsmanship was very beautiful but it was very dormant i saw oh my god this is this is beautiful i had my favorite period in art history was minimalism and so i loved very simple pared down um designers and artists um and then one day actually after insead i i found this japanese art history book so see it's still the bookish learning of trying to read about different periods of art history and i read this one little manual which i recommend actually it's just a world of art Thames and hudson that um, just gives you the one short interest to uh, intro to Japanese art and I picked up that book and I say the story I picked it up at Tate Britain and I don't know why because at Tate Britain you you don't have Japanese art it's all about the evolution of English art and British artists Um, and after whatever exhibition which I don't remember I don't remember the exhibition I saw (laughs) I just remember I saw that one book and I flipped through it and I said I have to read this and uh, and i finished reading that book and i turned to my partner and i said we have to go to japan that's our next destination for holiday um and so i went to japan and then i came back from japan i say i want to go to japan again (laughs) i just speak a (laughs) word (laughs) so we went to japan again um in a different season and then i had started reading literature in addition to art and um and then After that, I said, I want to learn a new language. So I'm reading all these Japanese authors. Wouldn't it be nice once I'm in my 80s (laughs) to be able to read one book in Japanese? And I say 80s because there's a ton of Chinese characters, kanji, that you need to learn in order to actually be able to read a book in Japanese. (laughs) And it's a lifelong goal. Um, So when I started this, so remember, I started with the art, I then wanted to learn the language. Um, I came across a painting, <laughs> I said, I've never painted in my life, this isn't going to work. But it sounded so nice. And my teacher is a, an amazing teacher. i um, very motivating. And I had just such a relaxing time because you start by grinding the ink in your stone with water and there's no devices, just one brush and your paper and the ink. And you try to come across the essence of the object or the scene that you're trying to depict with as few strokes as possible. So it's not about making a photorealistic image. It's about trying to find what's the one or two characteristics which are important about that topic that you want to convey and about that moment which you want to convey. Um and that's what fascinated me uh, and it, it this principle actually is key to a number of uh arts in in japan if you take um this idea of trying to focus on the essential the pared down you will see it in gardening you will see it in the ceramic you basically see it in even in performance arts and um and so i said i'm not sure i'll ever be a painter but I want to keep doing this because I just feel happy Um, and so I kept doing it and after a year I decided to paint every day and sketch every day so you know like filling (laughs) lots of notebooks and and then at some point after a year of daily practice 15-30 minutes people started asking me oh this is because they saw me sketching every now and then in a coffee break or meeting after a meeting not too, um, and they kind of said um, could we have some of these and I'm like uh, you just look so happy and so excited when you talk about your art and um, could we also you know have a little bit and that's when I started saying okay let me maybe do an edition and try to share some of the art because these are journals and there's a very strong if you look at actually like how memory works and um, the more and um, senses you have stimulated the stronger your memories are and the more accessible they become in the long term Mm -hmm. for you Um, and so if i look at um like today i have a twig which we clipped from um from a cherry tree and i've noticed that even though i was expecting the the twig to die actually the buds are slightly opening and i can see a little bit of pink and green so it probably not become a flower. But I can see that detail and it's very interesting. I had never noticed that before. And um so I try to capture its its essence. So it teaches you to see more. And mm-hmm. um and by seeing and focusing more, it's a little bit like a meditation, you you find beauty every day around you because if it's really a little bit I, I think I write about it being it's like a little happiness kind of cheat or hack <laughs> um if every day you try to find something beautiful around you it makes you really grateful i think to to be here and really connected um and i think it's it's something that you can use as well like when we're in business you have very packed and very draining days but you can always find what was the one thing you learned or the one highlight of your day not just in nature but i think in the people or in the work around you. So, but it's difficult it's not easy i think to, <laughs> to
0: it's got think. to be a habit right it's got to be something you practice like you said but you, I you think that is that is the way to get there.
1: that is the way and when you default it's okay to say okay i couldn't do it today because this and that happened but i'll do it again tomorrow and i'll keep doing it um but for me, it's very interesting because now I go back on a journal I filled like I don't know, maybe a dozen journals um, since I started. I go back on a specific page, and I can actually tell you exactly the moment that triggered that one image, uh, okay. <laughs> which and um, maybe the if I was with someone, the people I was with and um, the conversations we're having. So it's. Um, and it, that gives me happiness, too, because they're usually very happy uh, moments, and that's why I enjoy sharing it with other people, too, because from going back to, to my vision, it's not so much about me being a creative leader and me being happy. It's about bringing that creativity and sharing that happiness, I think, with uh with other people as well (laughs) in a way sounds very a little bit cheesy but um.
0: I don't think it sounds cheesy and uh, a lot of people who uh, know me and if they've stuck with us through this podcast and are still listening there's probably a few of you that know me to be very cheesy I love cheesy (laughs) (laughs) because thing for me is it's authentic and uh I can tell it's from the heart, uh, Mafalda, and I think it's a good time to wrap up on that because I think you are making the world a better place by putting your energy into it the way you do. I think your art is fantastic and everyone should go and check it out. I am going, I, I still don't quite know how this works, so I just put links in like the description of the the podcast, um, but I'm not sure if people will even see those links or not. So uh, it's Mafalda T- Tenente, right? I think
1: if you if you write spell as long as you spell my name correctly on the podcast, anyone can Google and you will find me. Yeah,
0: it's <laughs> Tenente dot com, and you'll find her. So check, I think so the minute
1: check. I decided to make my social media public for sharing my art, you can now find me anywhere and everywhere oh, all okay. the time there you,
0: there you go okay so she's easy to find so uh, go check her out and uh, and my father thank you so much for spending the time talking to me i really i loved learning from you and uh, it's great to see you again after all these years it's uh, what well, it's nearly 15 years since we
1: graduated. It's gonna be 15 years this is a celebration podcast <laughs> it's, bananas, <huh>? <laughs> it's so long party ago. time oh